All right, hello, welcome along. A brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly is go. My name's Dan. This week, we're looking at an island that is so deadly, the people who lived there are ready and they are dressed for danger at any time. Also, you can hear about a strange way that scientists are saving the turtles. And I've got your questions to answer as always. This week, they're on music, eclipses and electricity. That's coming up after we dive into it with one of our favourite climate experts this week. This is Marina Ventura. Marina Ventura's Climate Explorers. Now, we all like talking about the weather. In fact, people in Britain are well known for it. The weather's quite good. It's quite hot and it's quite sunny. Windy and very cold. A bit rainy. Freezing. About a bit sunny. Very windy. That all of the leaves are falling off the trees. Talking about the weather is one of the ways we start conversations, especially with people we don't know. One of the reasons for this is because it's something we have in common with everyone around us. If it's a rainy day and I get soaked in a downpour, you might have got wet too. And if it's freezing cold, then you're probably feeling it as well. And weather is a topic that everyone has an opinion about. Maybe it's chillier than it was yesterday. Perhaps you didn't expect to need a coat because you thought it was going to be a bit warmer. Not knowing quite what to expect means it's often surprising. That's why people like to read, listen to or watch weather forecasts every day to help make sure they've got the right clothes on. And with rain heading down south, tomorrow is set to be wet, so don't forget your umbrella. After all, no one likes getting soaked. But weather's quite a strange thing, even if it's cold and wet on one day. The next day can be very different. And not everyone gets the same weather, even when they're in the same country. Schools in the north of England will be shut today due to heavy snow. But in the Midlands, there's no snow, so schools are open as usual. Sorry, kids. So as you can see, weather is constantly changing, which is probably why it's so interesting. As we've seen, weather forecasts help us to know what to expect, but even without them, we have a feeling about what the weather should be like at different times of the year. We expect it to be cold in winter and warmer in summer. Have you ever wondered why this is? Let's find out. Let's ask MapApp. He's great at explaining things. It's all to do with climate. There's a saying, weather is what you get and climate is what you expect. And that's a great way to remember the difference. Weather describes what the conditions are like at a particular time and place, whilst climate is what the weather is generally like at that time of year. Here in the UK, winters are generally mild and summers... Well, they don't get too hot. We have what's called a temperate climate. So how do they figure out what the climate is? Scientists constantly take measurements of the weather, things like temperature and rainfall, and they do this over many years. This gives them a lot of information and helps them to see patterns. These patterns help describe the climate. Most people will never have seen those measurements, but we still know that our winters are usually cold. How come? During everyone's lifetimes, people learn about the patterns in weather. And, as you've described, because weather is a popular topic of conversation, these ideas have always been shared. What is interesting is that just like the weather, those patterns that make up our climate can gradually change too. And because scientists keep track of weather measurements from the past, they can spot these slow changes. Fascinating, Mappy. Next time, we'll explore how climates differ in different parts of the world. See you then. 
Marina Ventura's Climate Explorers, supported by the Natural Environment Research Council, the science of the natural world. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash marina. Question time on the show, my favourite part where you turn me into a science Sherlock Holmes. I do the digging, the detective work on something sciencey that is racking around your brain. Let me know what the question is as a review over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Grace has done that. Hello, Grace. She says, uh, well done on winning the best podcast in the universe in award. Uh, thank you very much, Grace. Uh, e- even though her dad doesn't believe her. I'm going to fall out with your dad, I think. What more do I need to prove it to him? I've got the award, the certificate, and then the prize and everything. Grace's dad, you've gone into my bad books. Anyway, Grace says, how does music work? I guess you mean, how does music go from a phone to a speaker? How is that then played around the room? How do you hear it? Well, songs are basically written down and recorded in techno babble and codes. And those codes make electrical energy. These go to speakers which transfer that electro- electrical code into motion. Now, in the speaker, a current of electricity is sent through a coil of wire. Now, that makes a magnetic field. That's what happens when electricity runs through wire. Now, there is another magnet in the speaker, if you can picture that. And the two magnets that you've got, one in the wire, one in the actual speaker itself, it, it, they attract and repel each other. So the speaker drum thing is going back and forward, back and forward, and that makes the speaker create sound waves. They travel across the room, into your ears. Your brain then decodes the sound waves to help you understand the music. It's quite a lot to get your head around there. It's brilliant technology, ingenious stuff. Thank you for the question, Grace. Uh, King Duck asks, why do your eyes get damaged if you look at an eclipse? It's because when you're looking at the eclipse, at some point you'll be staring at the sun, so you shouldn't do that because the sun gives off basically too much power uh, than our eyes are meant to handle. Its energy, the sheer force of its shine can uh, burn your retina, which is something in the back of the eye that figures out what you're seeing. So while the moon is completely blocking out the sun, it will be dark. The problem is you don't know how long it's going to be there and the sun can peek out and surprise you, and it can shine too much light for your eyes. Uh, And finally this week, Arthur P10 asks, how does the sun give us electricity? Well, they are made from photovoltaic cells uh, in solar panels, and it lets the sun's light knock electrons around. That's what they're designed to do. And these electrons, they whiz all around the place, they create movement, which then charges up, batteries pretty much that are on either side of these cells that are in the middle so then when all three of these different parts of the solar panel are hit by sunlight they create a form of electrical charge because of the movement of the electrons and that creates a current so you get the electricity thank you so much for the question arthur if you want something answered on the show next week you need to leave it as a review for me over on apple podcasts it's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, there is a brand new CBBC series. It's coming out. It's right up the street. It's called Planet Defenders. It's all about people just like you who are trying to save the world. Now, Ash Kapoor, she's on a mission to protect India's only ape, uh, the Hulok Gibbon. And uh, she joins us now. Hey, Ash. Hi, how are you? <laughs> yes, I'm very well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, I guess, start. just tell us a bit more about the Gibbon. Why is it so special? Uh, what does it look like? And also, why is it so endangered at the moment? 
Gosh, hulak gibbons are absolutely amazing. They're just simply such a brilliant species. I mean, have you ever heard one call? No, I've never heard. No. They've got the most incredible calls. I mean, they're like the master singers of the world. They're like opera singers of nature. And they're really very special, but you know, they are very endangered and largely because most of their habitat has already been lost. I mean, they are pretty much um, isolated in these pockets of forest which are left in uh, the northeast of India. And um, that's really got them in some serious trouble. So uh, they are struggling in the wild and uh, they desperately need our attention. Now, quite a lot of the time with endangered species, we love them, but they yeah. make life difficult for themselves. I mean, if you think <laughs> of the panda, they can kind of only have babies like for a very slim window every year. Is it similar with the with the hulot gibbon in that it, it's kind of up in the trees and it doesn't really want to come down? Yeah, it's exactly like that. I mean, you've really nailed the problem. The thing is, it's an arboreal species, which is kind of ironic because they are actually one of the most bipedal apes. That means they can run on their legs. But at the same time, they never want to come down and they just literally don't want to hit the ground. So... Uh, suppose there's like a fragmented forest somewhere, like a patch of forest. And in India, it's very, very usual to see a forest. Then you have, say, villages and you've got like plantations or industrial land and then another patch of forest. So for animals to get between one forest and another forest, they have to move through human landscape. And sometimes these landscapes don't have canopy cover. So when it comes to gibbons, when there's even one connecting tree missing between one forest patch and another forest patch, they literally won't cross over. They'll just stop in their tracks. So they've, I mean, I mean, of course, it's our fault as human beings because we've, we've completely destroyed the canopy cover. But even as a species, you're right, they do make it a little harder for themselves because they don't <laughs> come down. They don't come down and they just won't like run across. So, so yeah, yeah, yep. We just uh, have to find a different way. <laughs> well, well, how did you first learn of the gibbon? Because it, it, it's an animal that when we talk about <laughs> yeah. endangered species, you know, it's not really top of the list. What, what, how have you learned about it? Why is it so close to your heart? Oh, gosh, you know, my first encounter with a gibbon was just so weird. So I was in the northeast of India, and I was looking for story ideas. And um, it was brilliant because I had this crazy encounter with a really funny old gibbon that came fairly low down on a branch. And she was quite habituated to this village. She came down really low on a branch, sat on my camera and began grooming my head like literally looking for nits in my hair like I was a fellow gibbon and that moment was just so embarrassing and so funny all at the same time but honestly I just fell utterly in love with the species in that crazy moment and ever since I think they've really been one of my absolute favorite species and that particular gibbon and I really struck up a fabulous friendship and that was my first not so gentle introduction to the world of gibbons <laughs> so, yeah Ash you've already said how uh, it is quite a tough species to, to, to keep going because they're not that keen to come down and they, 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 mm. we, humans, we've made life hard for themselves. When you decided that you wanted to do all you can to save these animals, uh, what did you do? How did you plan your mission? 
So the first thing I did, you know, the first thing we had to do was sort of find out where was the best place to film them in the wild. And funnily enough, I got in touch with a whole lot of people in the northeast of India, scientists and conservationists and ground level contacts. And everyone was sort of coming back with the same answer, which was not a forest. And everybody kept telling me that, you know, actually the best place to film them is not a forest, but in this village where these gibbon live amongst people. There's like this population of gibbon that live amongst people. So that really piqued my interest. And so I called my friend uh, Skippy, uh, who is also a naturalist, and the two of us uh, decided to go off on this adventure and try and find out what's happening with them. Uh, so yeah, that's that's where, where we were. And the next thing we knew, we were waking up to the calls of gibbons in this beautiful Indian village <laughs> and uh, exploring the problems and the solutions in terms of what is being done, what isn't being done, and what desperately really needs to be done in the future to make sure that populations of gibbons can meet each other, if you know what I mean. I mean, when there's a baby gibbon that needs to find new territory, he needs to find a new patch of forest because his island of, I mean, when I say island, I literally mean like a patch of forest that's cut off by human habitation, that he needs to leave that spot because it's probably oversaturated. So, it, so gibbons need to find new wild places. So, uh, I caught up with a scientist who was working on, who's been working on uh, education, then other scientists who've been working on trying to connect canopies. So yeah, so uh, yeah, there's some good, there's some good work being done in that region now. And it's not just all scientists or really, really smart experts that are, that are helping save no. the creatures. You, um, you got involved with like local villagers to help the gibbons. Yeah, the time, I mean, yes. I mean, I couldn't believe how invested these people in the village were in the lives of these gibbons and especially the kids. Good Lord. So every kid there literally knows how to call exactly like a gibbon. It's so cute. It's first thing in the morning, you have these gibbons calling and these kids looking up in the trees and calling them. And it's just so amazing because they're so intertwined. Oh, their lives are so intertwined with the with the species that the kids, they're really growing up, you know, with a very strong affinity towards conservation and wanting to protect the species. So that gives me a lot of hope for the future of the species in that region. And uh, yeah, it's really a model place because people are just so kind to the animals there and they're so accommodating. So this is really a place to look up to and learn a lot from in terms of, you know, sharing is caring. So uh, with, with so much of wildlife running out of space across the world, I think more and more places need to have people like that. Now, you're part of this new CBBC show, it's Planet Defenders, and, and the, the, there are quite a lot of different um, activists and environmentalists like you saving all sorts of creatures. I mean, we meet someone trying to help dolphins and mm. uh, beavers and uh, it's like Scottish wildcats. Uh, <laughs> tell us what it, what it kind of means for you to be part of uh, a new show that's dealing with such a big topic and getting it out there. Oh, yeah, so... Honestly, it's just such a privilege to be a part of this show because I feel really strongly about uh, the environmental problems our world faces today. And I know that, I mean, I'm in, first of all, the company that I'm in is amazing because each one of these other filmmakers, they're so passionate and each of them have, uh, you know, made such a brilliant film each. And they're so, so passionate about what they do. So it's the company that I'm in is fabulous, first of all. And secondly, I know that kids today around the world are really concerned and um, extremely, extremely passionate about the future of the planet too. So it's amazing to be reaching out to them, to reach out to like-minded young people who share my passion for the wild. So really being a part of this new, uh, very exciting international um, conservation show has been, well, a dream come true, really. Amazing. Well, the show is Planet Defenders. <laughs> 
Uh, over here, it's on CBBC. Ash Kapoor, thank you so much for joining us. For this week's Dangerous Dan, we're travelling to an island off the coast of Japan in Asia, where the island itself is actually the deadly thing we're talking about. Miyaki Island, Miyaki-jima, is an island with a gigantic volcano slap bang in the centre, and people actually live there, they live around it. The volcano is Mount Oyama, uh, and it's erupted many times throughout history. Now, back in 2000, 21 years ago, the volcano began erupting on and off, on and off. And then the whole island was evacuated. People had to leave their homes to go elsewhere to find somewhere else to live. Five years later, in about 2005, uh, about 3,000 people came back. Now, almost half the island is still off limits to humans. But it's an island that's full of danger in the air because this volcano mount oyama it's always leaking poisonous gas so if you live there you have to carry a gas mask with you all the time and alarms and sirens around the island they go off when the the levels of sulfur gas in the air get too deadly maybe when the mount oyama is going to erupt again and then people need to put on their gas mask and they need to leave straight away terrifying stuff for Miyakijima Island in this week's Dangerous Dan. NMG's Energy Challenge. This electricity meter is brilliant. Look, if I switch on the washing machine and the toaster burner and the teddy box and all the other silly machines, see how fast the meter spins. Um, gee, that's costing these humans a lot of money. Stop it. Gee, stop it. They're going to get a shock when they get the bill. But they'll never know. We'll be back on Zog by the time they come back. They will know because the meter tells the power company exactly how much the family has used. So they pay the right amount. Ah, come on. Let's find out more about measuring electricity without costing them the earth whilst we do it. Welcome to electquizzery.com. Find out more about energy on earth and post your questions for the Quizler. You buy milk in pints and food by the kilo. What do you buy electricity in? Watts are the basic unit of measurement for electricity. What's a watt? Watts are a combination of the voltage, an electrical force that makes electricity move, and the amps. That's the amount of electrons that are moving. I really did think electrons were the aliens from planet Electra, the evil electron. Shush, I'm trying to learn here. Power companies figure out how much electricity has been used by counting watts, kilowatts, that's a thousand watts, and megawatts, that's a million watts. I think I need to find a calculator for this. Shush. They usually take measurements in kilowatt hours, megawatt hours, and gigawatt hours. To understand what a kilowatt hour is, imagine 10 100 watt light bulbs all switched on for one hour. I thought you were meant to turn off lights if you weren't using them. It sounds pretty wasteful having all those light bulbs on. It's just an example. A megawatt hour would be enough to power 2,000 homes for an hour. A gigawatt hour would be enough to power a million homes for an hour. I wonder how much the toasty burner uses. Probably a teeny amount. Different electrical appliances use different amounts of energy. Often, those which use heat need more than those which don't. Manufacturers are always seeking to find new ways to make their appliances use less energy. New washing machines and fridges have a rating which helps people to understand how expensive it will be to run. It's sensible to try not to use electricity unless you need to, not just because it will mean a smaller bill, but it's better for the planet too. So setting everything running was not such a great idea. Sorry, humans. 
Watch out. Looks like we're going to fuse, G. Here it comes. Whoopee! I love a bit of fusion. Here it comes. Woohoo! NNG's Energy Challenge with support from National Grid. Find out more online at bunkerslive.com slash energy. It's time for this week's Science in the News. More than 500 grey seals have been spotted at a nature reserve in the north of England for the first time. It's a jump of almost 10% on last year's numbers. Experts have been worried that seals might leave because of humans going about their day nearby, surfing, paddleboarding on the water. But it seems that they like it even more. Brilliant news, right, that the seals are coming back. Also, experts are worried about forest fires tearing through the Himalayas in Asia at the moment. The the Himalayan mountains, where Everest is, uh, are surrounded by luscious green forests. But fires are decimating them and terrifying the people that live there, and scientists are unsure what to do. And finally, in better news, conservationists are trying to save green turtles by calling their eggs. The green turtles in Australia are under threat from climate change because warmer sand temperatures means more girls are hatching than boys. Uh, Now, conservationists find the eggs. They call them down in a lab, which evens out the numbers. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've got a science question that you want answered by the greatest podcast in the history of the universe, officially award-winning, that's for Grace's dad, um, you can leave it for me as a review over on Apple Podcasts. Also, while you're there, you can hear some of the brilliant podcasts that we do at Fun Kids. You can get them wherever you get your shows, really. Google, Spotify, on the free Fun Kids app. You can have a listen at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we're a children's radio station from the UK. Hear us all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app, and at funkidslive.com. Listener.